This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a seminar by Jamar Tisby. Jamar Tisby is a historian, writer, and speaker who published his first book, The Color of Compromise, in January of 2019. This seminar was originally recorded in June 2014 at the PCA General Assembly in Houston, Texas. Let's listen to Jamar Tisby's seminar entitled, An Indigenous Reformed Movement in the African American Community. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, pray with me. Holy and Heavenly Father, we thank You for getting us up in the morning for the activity of our limbs, for a sound and functioning mind. And we thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to come together about indigenous reformed movement in African-American communities. Holy God, we thank you for this picture in Revelation that shows a multinational, multilingual, multi-hued congregation of the people of God united in worship to you for all eternity. And we, be, we begin here, Lord, because we always want to begin in your word. And you have given this wonderful and glorious picture of the consummation. And we ask that you speed the day of Christ's returning. And until that time, help your church, your bride, be more beautiful as represented by the diversity of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any of these one of these type of devices. Does anybody use Instagram ever? You know what? Come on. We're... Any, any sort of thing where you take a picture on your phone. Now they have these different filters, right? They've got, you know, Sepia. They've got X-Pro2. They've got Hi-Fi, Lo-Fi, whatever you want to call it. Why do you choose a different filter for your picture? Why do you choose a different filter? You want to be artsy? You want to be original? Yes. Put yourself in the best light. What do these different filters do to the picture? Somewhat. Yes, yes. So look, does the picture itself, the figures that you've taken a picture of, do those change? No. But your lens does, if you will. Your filter does. And when you change that filter on Instagram, what's happening is you're bringing out different aspects of that picture. So maybe you want the light to be brighter so you can see everything. 
Or maybe you want to highlight the blues and the reds so you can see the contrast. My point is, you don't change what is on the page, but you change your filter to highlight different aspects of what's on the page. And that is what we are doing, and that is what we are talking about when we say an indigenous reform movement among African-American communities. We're not talking about changing the truth of Scripture. We're talking about the fact that each of us, individually and corporately, as cultures and races and communities, comes to the text with a different set of questions, problems, issues that we want the Bible to give its answers for. And it doesn't mean we're changing the truth of the text. It just means we have a different lens. We have a different filter. And the reality is that when I scroll through all those Instagram lenses, I like having those choices because I can see different parts of the picture more clearly. That's what we're talking about today. All right. My name is Jamar Tisby. I am in my last year, exactly five more classes to go in my MDiv at RTS Jackson. I've enjoyed every minute of it, but I will be glad to be done with that phase, just to, just to say I can. I'm also an intern slash apprentice at Redeemer Church under the newly minted Reverend Dr. Mike Campbell, and I work at RTS in the admissions office, uh, specifically with the African American Leadership Initiative. This session today is called an Indigenous Reform Movement in African American Communities. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that title in a second. I have one simple point that I want to put forward to you right now, and it's this. If I had a thesis, it would be this. We are witnessing a rise in classical, historical, reform theology among African Americans, and for that, we should praise God. But we have more work to do if we want to see a truly indigenous reformed movement among African Americans take place in a consistent and widespread manner. I'll say it again. We are witnessing a rise in classical, historical, reformed theology among African Americans, and for that we should praise God. But we have more work to do if we want to see a truly indigenous reformed movement among African Americans take place in a consistent and widespread manner. So, I got three objectives today. I used to be a middle school teacher. It's going to feel like a lesson plan, but hopefully it'll stick in your brain. Number one, we want to describe the reformed roots of African-American Christianity. Number two, we want to trace the rise of reformed theology among African-Americans in the present day. And number three, we want to define the contours of an indigenous reformed movement and imagine ways forward. So you can think of it in terms of past, looking at our Reformed roots, present, talking about the rise of Reformed theology, and future, imagining ways forward. A few disclaimers before we get started. I am no expert. Uh, we have the tendency to think that the guy up front knows everything. I don't. What I'm doing is synthesizing a lot of work from, a, uh, from other great thinkers. I think in particular of a couple men we have in this room, Dr. Carl F. Ellis Jr., who has pioneered much of this work and coined the phrase, to my knowledge, an indigenous reformed movement among African Americans. I think also of Y. Plummer, who has been an incredible resource for me in learning about not only uh, African Americans in reformed theology, but African Americans in the PCA. 
So I'm no expert. There are people in this room who can speak a lot more knowledgeably about this. What I am is a bike messenger for the movement. I get to go around delivering all this great knowledge that has benefited me in the hopeful prayer that it will benefit you too. Second disclaimer, African-Americans are not monolithic. So the title says an indigenous movement in the African-American community. I've tweaked it to say indigenous movement movement in African-American communities, plural. All right, because we're very, very different. Um, You can't paint with too broad a brush here. And yet we have such a history and such a culture that I do think it is legitimate to talk about something called the African-American experience. Even if it's mainly historical today, there is a solidarity that African-Americans have because of our history and race-based chattel slavery in America and later uh, legislated segregation through Jim Crow laws. That still speaks to something of an African-American community, so I will use both terms, but understand that I understand we ain't all the same. Thirdly, I am Presbyterian and Reformed. I want to make that clear. Like Dr. Ellis said yesterday, I subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I've taken Guy Waters' class on church polity and read the book of church, church order from cover to cover. And I am in the PCA for those reasons. I like it. Even as I come and uh, talk about these things of needing different lenses and different filters. I believe Reformed theology is the best articulation of biblical teaching and the most robust framework to carry the freight of life's issues. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be under care in the Mississippi Valley Presbytery. I wouldn't be an intern and apprentice at Redeemer Church under Reverend Mike Campbell. I wouldn't be in the MDiv at RTS Jackson. And I just want you to know I'm all in. Finally, I am African-American. I don't know if you noticed. But I say that because you may ask, well, why this focus on African-Americans? Because I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans 9. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I have personal and cultural ties to the African-American community. And it's not an exclusive tie. I love all people. I love diversity. But I have a particular burden for my people. But specific does not mean exclusive. Okay? Specific does not mean exclusive. Now, those preliminaries underway, let's dive in. We're going to talk about the past. Now, I'm no historian, and this is an admittedly cursory survey. There are many people in this room and in this hotel who could do a much better job. I'm not really going to make any pretense of being thorough. What I want to do is point to literally a couple of quotes that show that Reformed theological principles were part of the Christianity that African slaves in America originally learned. A lot of what I'm saying comes from this book, The Decline of 
African-American theology from biblical faith to cultural captivity by Thabiti Anyabwile. Not everybody would agree with the premise of this book, that there is a decline, if you will, in theology. And I do want to be careful to say that even now and on, on through history, there have been and are vibrant black churches teaching vital, saving faith. That is not, I'm not saying that's not happening. What this book was helpful for me to understand, coming new to this, coming fresh, was that Reformed theology isn't anything new in the black church tradition, if you go back far enough. Here's what Thabiti says. Orthodox Christian theology, a Reformed theology in particular, serves as the baseline for judging the strength of African-American beliefs. The earliest generation of African-American writers generally held to a broadly reformed perspective. As a result of their early contact with Calvinistic Baptist and Anglican missionaries, and because this theology shaped the wider colonial and American society in the hands of New England Puritans. In other words, the missionaries to African slaves, many of them were Calvinistic and reformed in their theology. So even as we wrestled with this dichotomy of master and slave, master and slave the theology they were learning was reformed and Calvinistic in nature. Another historian, John Salant, says this, Indeed, Calvinism seems to have corroborated the deepest struggling elements of the experiences of such men and women as they matured, meaning slaves, from children in, living in slavery or servitude into adults desiring freedom, literacy, and membership in a fair society. From Calvinism, this generation of black authors drew a vision of God at work providentially in the lives of black people, directing their sufferings, yet promising the faithful among them a restoration to his favor and his presence. And lastly, from some of these men themselves, Jupiter Hammond, you can see the sovereignty of God in his quotes, says this, It is only by the precious blood of Christ we can be saved. When we are made sensible of our own imperfections and are desirous to love and fear God, this we cannot do of ourselves. Sounds like a good tulip reform salvation. For this is the work of God's Holy Spirit. And then commenting on the passage, the Beatty says, For Hammond... As was typical of Augustinian Reformed theology, the moral inability of man flowed naturally from man's complete depravity and spiritual deadness. You get the picture. I say that Reformed theology was part of, at least part of the Christianity that African Americans learned because we sometimes, as African Americans, face the criticism, well, you just learned the white man's religion. By the way, if you have believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you are adopted into the household of faith, as am I. So, we're brothers and sisters. This is a family conversation. So we be able to speak truth in love. Okay? So I'm just being honest with you. And if it sounds blunt, understand I consider you part of the family. All right. <laughs> Yeah, all right, all right. So there are accusations that as we learn Reformed theology in particular, and we step out of the predominantly African-American tradition, you're crossing over, you're breaking ranks, you're learning the white man's religion, your Uncle Tom. I want to say, well, you didn't go back far enough. 
This is not external. This is internal. This is endemic. And so as we learn Reformed theology in a way, we're just going back to our religious roots. That's the only point I want to make on the past. All right. That serves as a helpful foundation as we move forward to the present. This is more my wheelhouse because of the work God has allowed me to do in various ministries. So in the present, we want to talk about the rise of Reformed theology in African-American communities. Let me make a couple of qualifications here. When we talk about rise, <laughs> we talk about a very small subset of African-Americans still. OK, we're not talking about um, broader black church tradition yet. God willing, we are talking about a, a, a part of a part of a part of African-American Christians, which is still very small, but it is growing. So it's accurate to speak of something of a rise in Reformed theology. Secondly, when I say Reformed, I'm talking about the historic and classic forms of Reformed theology. I'll break that down in a minute. But what I'm talking about is, is the, uh, basically the Reformed theology that we've inherited. Uh, we say Reformed theology is simply biblical, so it goes all the way back to the Bible but also men like Augustine on up through the historic reformers of Luther and Calvin and the rest, and on, on to more recent folks like the Puritans. Mainly I'm talking about a rise in Reformed theology has to do with Reformed theology that could be characterized culturally as Western, high academic, Anglo, and male. That's the kind of Reformed theology that is on the rise, generally speaking, which is not a bad thing. Don't say, I'm not saying that to, be, uh, to denigrate it at all. I'm just saying that the lens that we're using is this historic classic lens in general. So this is really, this present rise is really the reason for this seminar. Um, very early on when I got to RTS Jackson, I started seeking out other Reformed African Americans. And one of the first names that popped up and one of the first people I contacted is Y. Plummer as the African American Ministry Coordinator. Now, what is unique about conversations between me and Y is that we both have these sort of horizon level views of what's going on with Reformed theology and African Americans. So him and his position with MNA, he's got a good landscape picture of what's going on with African Americans in the PCA. And he knows things that are going on across the country in different cities and different churches. And with my work with the Reformed African American Network and recruiting students at RTS, I'm talking to people every single day from California to Baltimore who are African-American and learning these reformed doctrines. So we'd be on the phone and we'd be like, hey, did you hear about this guy doing this? Did you hear about that church doing that? And we said, man, this is great stuff. This is wonderful work that God is doing. We ought to let people know. So really, the seed of this particular seminar was simply a way to billboard some of these things that are going on with African-Americans in reformed theology and praise God for it. So what I'm about to do is just give you a few highlights. I want to point you, if you have a handout, just by reference, I, I'm not going to cover everything. I'm going to hit four different um, ministries in particular. But if you have a handout, you will have a, a, a sheet called the resource page. Now, this resource, resource page has many more events, ministries, conferences than I'm about to name. This might be the most valuable uh, 
piece that you get from this whole workshop. Um, you may forget everything I say, but hopefully these resources will be helpful to you. It contains um, events, ministries, conferences, as well as different books that have been helpful to me thinking through these things. So I won't say all of those, but I just want to highlight a few in particular that will be relevant for our conversation. All right, so first of all, we are looking at, I want to highlight five reasons real quickly for the, for the rise of Reformed theology among African Americans. That is a blog post I did, and it's listed on your resource page, but I just want to run through them. They're pretty self-explanatory. Why is Reformed theology on the rise among African Americans? One, Christian hip-hop. All right. Artists like uh, Lecrae, Andy Minio, Propaganda, Stephen the Levite, and more are reformed in, in, in their theological leanings. They may not say it, they may not even know it, but the theology you're getting through their rhythms and rhymes is largely reformed in character. And so when folks listen to this music, they are being subtly infused with the ideas of Reformed theology. So the rise of Christian hip-hop. Secondly, the digital age. Information is more accessible now than ever in history. So you have podcasts, videos, blogs, websites, and more that make it easy. If you want to learn more about anything, you just get on the internet. It's, it's, it is to the Reformation what the printing press was. We have this internet and this technology age that can reproduce this knowledge on a broad scale and widespread. Number three, greater access to reformed education. Historically, African Americans were barred from many of the seminaries and colleges that taught reformed theology. That is no longer the case. We can go to different places that are teaching reformed theology and therefore it is on the rise among those who attend such institutions. Number four, and these things are universal, a hunger for biblical teaching. I like for what uh, one commenter on Rand said after a blog post, he said this, Once I was exposed to the doctrines of grace, I realized the depth of the true gospel and my need for a deeper relationship with Christ. It's from an actual person commenting on the Rand website that says, Once I got turned on to this stuff, I wanted more. And that is just kind of a universal truth when the power of God's word grips you. And then lastly, why is it on the rise? God is sovereign. I like what it says in Lamentations 3.37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So ultimately, when we ask the question, why is Reformed theology on the rise among African Americans? The Lord has commanded it. And we can be thankful and praise him for that. How is it on the rise? A few highlights. Again, not comprehensive. Refer to your resource sheet and others for more information. I like the Legacy Conference. The Legacy Conference is put on by a guy named Brian Dye. He works for Grip Outreach for Youth. He's also the, the head of a, a small house church movement in Chicago. Their goal is to plant a house church in every one of the 55 neighborhoods in Chicago, particularly inner city communities. But the Legacy Conference started six or seven years ago. This year it takes place July 24th through the 26th in Chicago. And the main speaker is Francis Chan. Last year the main speaker was John Piper. What is interesting, oh, and this year RAN has a workshop track there, which means four two-hour workshops over the course of two days. Here's our topic, the Imago Day and the Minority Experience. 
and we have uh, an author, Trillia Newbell, helping us with one of these sessions, as well as Dr. Ellis will do one of these sessions, and then Philip will do one, and I will do one. And we're going to take it from a very reformed perspective. We're going to talk about it in terms of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Um, what I like about legacy is that it's urban, it's youthful, and it's ethnically diverse. The most ethnically diverse reformed-leaning conference I've been to. Understand when I say reformed-leaning, a lot of times they don't use the labels, even if they know them. They don't, they don't put them up front because that may not help them uh, connect with people. But their theology is reformed. And what I really like about Legacy is the arts. All right? Now, arts in every culture and every community are vitally important. Arts in every movement are vitally important. We can think about um, the, the Harlem Renaissance and the poetry and literature of Langston Hughes, Elaine Locke, Zora Neale Hurston, and more. We can think about the Reformation itself. A mighty fortress is our God coming out of the changes that are happening in the civil rights movement, we shall overcome. These are the arts infused into a movement. And so I'm wondering if uh, the arts in an indigenous reform movement might include songs like Church Clothes by Lecrae or I Am Not a Robot by Trip Lee or the spoken word poetry of Jackie Hill and Propaganda. And this legacy movement, this conference, has spoken word poetry, it has a rap battle, 16 bars of freestyle rap, and it is all Christocentric. So it's a beautiful uh, uh, blend of, of historic reform theology and newer art forms. Second one, the African American church planting, its initiative. I, I'm not sure if I put conference or initiative there. AACPI. Now this is organized by Alex Shipman, who is an African American PCA teaching elder. That takes place August 7th and 8th in Nashville, Tennessee. It is interdenominational, and this is a cross-denominational initiative to provide contextualized direction for church planters and denominations who are doing ministry among African Americans. This event will address two areas, cultural intelligence and contextualization in African American church planting. This came out of a study done by LifeWay Research that basically said African-American church planting is different from the church planting we've been studying. They, they, they found statistics like 69% of African-American church planters were bivocational in the first few years. And that it takes much, much longer for an African-American congregation of a church plant to become self-sustaining. And that a very minuscule percent of African-American church planters actually received formal training. Now, you can find the actual study on Y Plumber's website on M&A and access the quantitative and qualitative data of this LifeWay research report. But I love it because this is an actual tangible action that we're taking in light of data that we found about ministry among African-Americans. And this is the first year they're doing it. So you can get in on the ground floor. Thirdly, I have to talk about the LDR weekend. It was launched in 2011 in Chattanooga in response to one student's lament that he couldn't find PCA or Reformed churches that were culturally accessible from his black church background. And so he came over along with other black seminary students to Chattanooga. We saw worship at New City Fellowship and the experience that we had connecting both theologically and culturally was powerful. And it was out of that conference that the idea for RAN came about because I said, wouldn't it be great if we had a way to continue this fellowship? And that's what RAN is, is a hub on the web um, where reformed African-Americans and like-minded Christians can connect. 
The LDR weekend has taken place in Jackson, St. Louis, and this year it's back to Chattanooga. The purpose of this year's, uh, this year's theme is life on life, catching the vision. And the purpose is to provide fellowship and discipleship for Reformed African Americans, especially in college and seminary. They feature breakout sessions with different PCA pastors and spouses, multi-ethnic ministry with Randy and Joan Neighbors, church planting with Kevin and Sandra Smith, the academy with Oliver and Anna Tremue, and cultural apologetics with Carl and Karen Ellis. So it's a time, instead of a traditional uh, workshop format where somebody's up front talking at you like I'm doing, you actually get a seminar with these folks and you get a chance, open Q&A, just to pick their brains. It's a one-of-a-kind opportunity to be discipled by these uh, veterans in the faith. And lastly, and I'll just mention this briefly so as not to be uh, too self-focused, uh, the Reformed African American Network and the African American Leadership Initiative. Now, RAN began in 2011 as a way to connect, um, keep the fellowship from the LDR ongoing. We have three basic goals. One, we want to provide biblical resources in the Reformed tradition. Two, we want to serve as a hub for Reformed African Americans on the web. And three, we want to develop theology in community. And then the African American Leadership Initiative also began in 2011 as an umbrella for all the different recruiting initiatives for African Americans at RTS. We have two stated goals. One, we want to recruit more African Americans to the seminary. That's partly a function of our context. Jackson, Mississippi is 80% African American, which is the second highest proportion of any city in America, over 100,000. And number two, we want to train Christians of any race for African American multi-ethnic and urban ministry. So you can find more information on those ministries on your resource page. I've given you a lot. I want to pause. Questions, comments, criticisms, concerns. Any more handouts? Any more handouts? No, I didn't know how many to expect. But um, what we'll do is we'll make this available on the RAN Network website, which will force you to go to the website. <laughs> and all of these are listed under different headings, whether books or websites or blogs, on the website. Yes, sir. Your church is interested in trying to reach Not to sound self-promoting, support RAN and the work that we do there because what we're trying to do is what you're wanting and centralize it so that we have an abundance of resources, authors, pastors, churches all in one spot that can help you whatever your particular needs are. So that, that truly is a way, I think, to answer your question. Um, two, begin learning. Begin feeding yourself. Go to these conferences. Listen is the first step. Um, actually, before that, I would start with Scripture and, and really interrogate our own hearts as to why we're wanting this to happen. You know, the diversity in the church is not a trendiness issue. It is not a secular social psychology issue. It is a gospel implication. And we've got to have that driven down into our hearts if we're going to come at this from a perspective of love and glorifying God. So starting with Scripture and understanding the biblical implications for this, making sure your people understand that as well. And then number two, feeding yourself by listening. And as you do that, you're going to get a lot of ideas. The world still needs more churches. As the National Seminary for the Presbyterian Church in America, 
Covenant Theological Seminary has been training pastors, counselors, and ministry leaders for the PCA for over 60 years. Now, Covenant Seminary offers a new church planting track designed specifically by church planters. You can learn more at covenantseminary.edu forward slash plant. That's covenantseminary.edu forward slash P-L-A-N-T. We have attempted to make the case that African-American Christianity has reformed roots in the past. We have looked at the present and we've traced the rise of reformed theology among African-Americans in the present day. What remains to be done is the hardest and most intriguing task, which is to define the contours of an indigenous reformed movement and imagine ways forward. My thesis was that we are witnessing a rise in classic, historic, reformed theology among African Americans, and for that, we should be thankful. But, we have more work to do if we want to see a truly indigenous reformed movement among African Americans take place in a consistent and widespread manner. Dr. Ellis highlighted this contrast for me. That while we are seeing a rise in Reformed theology, it is a particular formulation of it from a particular cultural background and historic moment. We have yet to see a truly indigenous Reformed theology arising from and speaking to the African-American context. Not that this hasn't happened before. We see pockets of it right now and throughout history. But what I'm talking about is a consistent form of theology done from an indigenous perspective, meaning it is we are self-consciously trained in and doing indigenous theology. And I'm talking about a widespread movement in terms of right now it's here and there in different pockets, but you have to dig to find it and a widespread movement would be more prevalent. I want to relate this to the scripture exercise we did at the beginning. When I talk about an indigenous reformed movement, I'm not talking about a different gospel. I'm talking about a group of people who has had a set of experiences that give them different lenses when they come to scripture. The questions that African Americans have and seek scripture to answer may be different from other cultures. That's not to say that there's not overlap. We all have issues that we bring to the, to the table that we have in common. Existential issues, personal individual issues, social issues about family. I'm talking about cultural issues in particular that may differ from one people group to another. But we're not talking about changing scripture. We're just talking about bringing a different set of questions, problems, and issues. If theology is the application of God's word to all of life, then much more theology remains to be done. This is not, we are not merely called to repeat historical formulations. We need to draw upon them and build upon them. We must do theology differently. This is not a substitute for what we've learned and how we've learned it, but it's in addition to what we're getting. Specifically, We have to take culture seriously. We have to realize that we all have a context, both individually and corporately, when we come to Scripture. We have to read our contexts accurately 
And we have to find the Bible's response prayerfully and spirit-led. And this is what is critical. Whatever an indigenous reformed movement looks like in its social and cultural implications, it begins with theology. It starts with theology and then moves out to social, cultural, and ethical impact. Listen to what the great Dr. Carl Ellis says in an essay. Amen. We can be thankful for the insights of historical theology. However, we cannot continue our dependence on yesterday's theology because it does not adequately address the issues we face today. For this, we must free ourselves from theological welfare, roll up our sleeves and get busy doing biblically sound theology, a theology that connects with our current life context. Another theologian put it this way. This is a white brother. To put the matter boldly, the ways we express and live the scriptures are by their very nature our ways to express and live them. They may have been quite appropriate for our historical contexts, but not quite as appropriate for our current contexts. From time to time, I put the matter this way. To represent Reformed theology, we must represent it. Simply repeating Reformed theology doesn't represent it at all. If you have your handout, you'll have a table that presents classical theology on one side and jazz theology on another. Now, this is directly from Dr. Carl Ellis's work. And what I've done is use this table to contrast different modes of doing theology. On the classical side, you have a more formal way of doing and learning theology. On the jazz side, it's more dynamic. Now, we know in classical music and jazz music, there's a difference. In classical music, the genius is in the mind of the composer. In jazz music, the genius is in the soul of the performer doing it. In classical music and theology, the beauty is as it is written. In jazz music, the beauty is as it is performed. Classical is a literary tradition. Jazz is an oral tradition. Classical is concerned with knowing what. Jazz is concerned with knowing how. Classical reflects God's oneness and unity. Jazz reflects God's diversity and freedom. Classical speaks to theology as it was formulated. Jazz speaks to theology as it is done. Neither is better than the other, just as classical music isn't necessarily better than jazz music. You may have a preference, but they're both beautiful forms of music when done excellently. But they're different. When you perform a classical piece, you're adhering to the notes on the page to stay faithful to the mind of the original composer. Jazz theology is done in the context of the moment. We need both, is my argument. Not to do away with one or the other, but we need both. Thus, a truly indigenous Reformed theology will utilize the best of historic and classical Reformed theology and put it in dynamic dialogue with the African-American experience to develop responses that speak authoritatively and directly to the African-American community. 
Let me tell you about the risks. Well, actually, I call this the amen effect. All right. Now, you know, in a sermon, you have the amen corner. And they'll just say amen. Now, why do people say amen? I think it's for two reasons. Number one, it is agreement. Somebody has said something that you agree with. Amen. I agree with that. But I think there's a second reason. The second reason is identification. The second reason you say amen is because you perceive that on some level the speaker understands you. They get where you're coming from. Colloquially speaking, you feel me? I feel you. That means we're resonating on a soul level. We're on the same frequency. And when those two things combine, agreement and identification, you can't even help it. You just say, amen. Now, we're used to seeing that in sermons and teaching. I want to say amen to our theology. And this happens. The first time I read Dr. Ellis's theology, I said, amen, because not only was it biblical truth, but it was speaking directly to my context. And we're looking for the amen effect in our reformed theology among African-Americans and people of all different cultural groups. Now, let me tell you what happens if we don't do this. Number one, African-Americans lose their cultural accent or flavor. What happens is when you take a person out of their cultural context and train them in a different cultural context, unless they are consciously trying to remain connected to that original context, they'll lose their cultural accents, just like learning a language. If you get taken out of a particular environment for long enough, you don't speak the same way when you go back there. If we fail to do truly indigenous reform theology, you risk taking people who have a different cultural lens and replacing those lenses with the ones you have. Which means they'll be less effective in their original context. Another risk. It ends up in a culturally bland denomination instead of a culturally rich one. I always think of it. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a risk. Every year at RTS, we do an international potluck. Now, you probably have experienced these. Say it again. A pot providence. I don't know. It's early in the morning. I don't, I don't get you. Okay, I'll wait on it. But at an international potluck, everybody brings, their, brings a dish from their homeland. And the point is that you get to taste different flavors from around the world and see the beauty and the culinary excellence from different cultures. Now, what would that potluck be like if everybody brought the same dish? There won't be no point in that. The beauty of an international potluck is the diversity of what people bring to the table. If we fail to do a truly indigenous reformed theology, we're all bringing the same dish to the table. And we lose that beauty and that richness of a culturally diverse theology. Lastly, the diversification of America is upon us. The revolution is now. We like to talk about it, oh, by the year 2040 or 2050, minor, uh, the current min minority will be in the majority. Folks, it's already happening. In 2011, minority births outnumbered majority births for the first time in U.S. history. That means those babies that were born in 2011 are going to be adults by 2040. They're already here. 
They're already here. Other institutions in our society have been integrating military, the secular academy, the arts, government, and many other segments of society. This is not a future possibility. This is a present reality. We will cease to be a prophetic voice to the extent that we fail to embrace diversity and work to love our multicolored neighbors, neighbors on all sides. Now, I'm not the theory guy. We leave that to smarter men. Maybe what I can do is help to contribute to the strategy portion of this. How do we start to do indigenous reform theology? Now, part of this is hard because we haven't done it on a consistent, widespread basis yet. So that's why I like this word, imagining ways forward, because then I just get to dream. I get to brainstorm. But I have been doing a lot of thinking about this in the ministries I'm involved in. And here's what I would say in terms of imagining ways forward. Number one, we need to start with a biblical understanding. Start with a biblical understanding of diversity, race, ethnicity, and culture. We cannot say we want our churches to be diverse because it looks good. Diversity in the church is a gospel implication. It's not the gospel, but if you believe the gospel, this is an implication of it. I think we should be striving to understand what the Bible says about these issues, because historically we haven't looked at the Bible with those lenses. We haven't brought those questions to Scripture. What do we do about racial diversity and integration? We need to bring those questions to the Bible and get the Bible's answers. Number two, diversify our sources. This has been one of the single most helpful things to me on my journey to try to do indigenous reform theology. This is not a substitute for the sources that we currently have. This is in addition to all those books I've listed, all those resources I've listed. Those are ways for us to diversify our sources. You cannot do indigenous reform theology nor promote it unless you start to understand other cultural contexts. A few books that have been seminal to me are not necessarily Christian books, which is another way of diversifying our sources. Uh, one is divided by faith by Emerson and Smith. Another is, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And other conversations about race by Beverly Daniel Tatum. She's a psychologist and president of Spelman College. And she posits a theory of racial identity development that says when minorities gather, it can be a positive thing, which is part of the impetus for something like the Reformed African American Network. A third book you must, must, must read is free at last. And that's by Dr. Ellis. Many of his foundational ideas are in that book. Diversify your sources. Number three, aggressively recruit ethnic minorities to seminaries. Why seminary? Because I believe that the single most effective way to continue the rise of Reformed theology among African Americans and see indigenous Reformed theology is to train the leaders. If we train the leaders, they will impact the churches. And so we must aggressively seek ethnic minorities to be trained in reform theology sensitively. I'll get to that in the next point. But if we can have pastors, assistant pastors, missionaries, counselors, and people who are dedicating their life 
to serving the body who are trained in this theology, we will begin to see the needle move in faster and more dramatic ways. Fourthly, we need to adapt our education for an ethnically and culturally diverse world. I want to get real specific here. Nuts and bolts stuff. This, is, this goes back to my teacher days. Number one, we need to utilize more case studies and field education. That's jazz theology. That's theology done as you're doing it. You give them the theoretical framework in classes, but then you release them to actually go do it. And we need to have academic credit for that. Case studies and field education will help you learn theology on the ground. And this is, of course, in addition to church, uh, church-based work and internship. Obviously, we all know this, we need minority leadership. We need professors in the classroom, but not only that, we need minority administrators. We need to be able to see minorities in reformed theological circles in leadership positions. Other ways to, to foster diversity. Use opportunities to bring in other people, for instance, guest lecturers. You can always find somebody to come in and be a guest, and even that, putting someone at the front who is from a different cultural context, means something. We need to elevate the status of practical theology. Oftentimes, let's just be real, different studies, biblical studies, theological studies, historical studies are on one level, Practical theology is on another level, often lower. And this, this cuts across race. These practical theologians are the ones doing theology. We need to understand they may be doing theology differently in a different mode, but it is just as valuable and just as necessary in the church. I propose something of an interdisciplinary studies department which blends, which, which, which what it says is practical theology is doing nothing more than taking the theory you've learned and putting it into action. And so interdisciplinary studies would do less of adding new content and more saying, what do you do with the content that you have? These would result in actual class projects, the field education and case studies I've mentioned. And then lastly, we need to move concerns about culture from the periphery to more central. Currently, the missiological discipline is the only one that has culture at its center because missionaries know that when you're trying to proclaim the gospel in different cultural contexts, you better understand culture. What if we had that in our other disciplines? What if we took culture seriously in other uh, courses in seminary? And how would that affect the way we do theology? Now, I have many more suggestions, but I want to close. <clears throat> We are witnessing a rise in classic, historic, reformed theology among African Americans. For that, we should praise God. But we have more work to do to see a truly indigenous reformed movement among African Americans take place in a consistent and widespread manner. We have the scriptures. We have the truth. We have reformed theology as a framework. The only question is, whether we will take our place at the forefront of this movement to foster a truly indigenous, reformed movement in the African-American community. Thank you. Now, I started late, so I don't mind ending late, but if you have to leave, you feel, feel free to go, but I will be here 
to take questions. Um, I can take some right now if you have any. Yes, sir. You've done a great job outlining the resources and describing the website the hub. Uh, one of the things our church really wants to do better, and we try to, is to get uh, diverse music selections for congregational singing. Because mm-hmm. I love the parade and all that with the guitar to sing that Sunday morning sometimes. <laughs> so, do you know of a centralized place? Because we've kind of grabbed from different churches and websites, but it's hard to find like really engaging, expressive music that's also good content. Do you have any ideas or resources that you want to do? Sure, uh, and others can speak more to this than I can, but I, I think of uh, New City uh, in Chattanooga, and James Ward has done a lot of pioneering work in just what you're talking about. So I'd look up James Ward as a starting place. Okay, good. Yeah, there's a, there's a music conference that, that, that New City puts on, and it's, uh, you, might, you might want to contact them and find out what it is, but they get it's really I've been to a couple of these, and it's really, really powerful. It's solid stuff that they, that they uh, and, and, and musicians bring stuff that they've written, and it just spreads all over the place. So it's a, it's a music conference. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, I've heard of so I'd go to Legacy yeah. as well. We'll go to Legacy. Okay, and um, visiting black churches and seeing how they do music. Send your musicians there. Have them have a uh, choir director or a musician from a black church come and do a training workshop. Okay. It just takes time. Yeah. Other questions? Jamar, what's been your experience with some of the theological challenges as you reach out to the African-American community trying to bring them into a historically white denomination how, does, how do you, how do we wrestle that? How, how do you, what are some of the pushback you get? Apart from what you said, you know, the white and religion, but from an ecclesiological and worship standpoint, what are ways that you're trying to address that and we try to address that? Yeah. It's a very complicated question. What are some ways you address the challenges of bringing African Americans or other ethnic minorities into a traditionally white congregation? Um, lots of different things. One is we got to understand the role of the black church or the role of the church in minority communities. And I'll speak specifically about African-Americans. The black church was the only place historically where you might see black leadership. It's the only place where someone would call you sir and ma'am instead of boy. It's the only place where you could come together to affirm your identity. And so in the minority experience, the church sometimes plays a slightly different role than in the dominant culture. And so you've got to realize that when you're asking a person to come to an integrated or predominantly white church, you're asking them to leave a lot. And that doesn't mean other, they won't be willing to do so, but that's part of the nature of our context, is that you're asking them to leave the environment, the one place where they might be in charge and affirmed, to go again into in a context where they're the minority or part of a plurality and they may not have as much voice. So that's just one reality that makes us a little bit more patient, I think. Um, I find there's a class difference as well uh, and a generational thing. Uh, so I happen to know where your church is located. You're in a prime spot. I am so excited about... So the, the city he's in, 
from the 2000 census to 2010 experienced a 111% increase in African Americans. They were moving from the city of Jackson out to a suburb. And that is a trend nationally. And it is these African Americans that I think the PCA is ripe for because they don't generally have churches they're comfortable with in these new communities. They'll commute back into the city, but it would be nice to have churches nearby. Um, they also tend to be, because they have the means to get out of their situation, they tend to be more educated and more financially uh, stable, which, so the, the, the class difference isn't as stark when you're coming into a typical PCA church. Um, and I would start there, and I would just sit and talk to people. We are so white. <laughs> you, know, you know what? He says we are so white. Which is great because you're recognizing your context. But what I've learned, love covers a multitude of cultural sins. If your congregation is welcoming to minorities, you walk up to them, you ask them to, to, to lunch after church, you get to know them. More often than not, our church, in fact, got started because a, a, there was a single black family that was loved so well by the congregation that they stayed. And then they were part of the transformation to help it become multi-ethnic. So don't a, I don't think any reasonable person would walk into a congregation and say, I'm here, I may be the only one, but y'all better change everything, so I'm comfortable. What they're honestly looking for is the word of God and the love of the Christian community. That will be the doorway. And then when you love them well and learn where they're coming from, your worship and your, your, your uh, congregation feeling, the, 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 you know, the atmosphere will tend to change with it. So focus on preaching the word of God and loving your guests well, especially if they're minorities and they may be cautious coming into that set, setting. Other questions? How do you see uh, an indigenous African-American reform theology engaging with uh, traditional black liberation theology, uh, especially for those of us who have, who, who have you know, cautions about liberation theology? Absolutely. Some of its, some of its presuppositions and roots. How, how, how do you see those two interacting with one another? Well, Aunt Anthony Bradley did his dissertation and has written a book on this precise subject. He's interacting with James, James Cone's liberation theology, so there's quite a bit of good work out there already. What I, what I think we can appreciate about liber, liberation theology is taking uh, social and ethical implications seriously, and so we can learn from that, but that's why it's so great to have this reformed framework, because it doesn't make, uh, as Dr. Ellis would say, ontological blackness the thing. It starts with a biblical basis, and you may comment on this further. Um, so I, think, I, I don't think we need to be afraid of it. I do think we need to interact with it, if only to be able to talk to people who are in it as an apologetic. But I think we can also learn some of the social and corporate dimensions because what Cone and liberation theologians are doing is bringing the core concerns of a particular cultural group to the fore and attempting to answer them, although with the liberal theology it's a very weak base they don't have the, the 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 framework that can hold it up we do i don't know if that answers your question okay take one or two more please do 
liberation theology by and large has been pretty much ignored by the black church anyway. I mean, it's not, it's not, there's a couple of churches like, uh, you know, Trinity with Jeremiah Wright and all that, but I mean, there's very few uh, African American churches that have embraced liberation theology because of its weak, part of it because of its weak foundations. But, uh, well, what, what Jamar is talking about is far more radical than liberation theology anywhere. Uh, because we're, we're talking about liberation with transformation, whereas the liberation of theologians want to talk about liberation. Anyway, that's, uh, that's not such, liberation theology is not such a big deal. And by the way, we can hold our own with those few people who are into that. So they are, you know, we do reform theology in context, run springs around them anyway. <laughs> Love it. One more question, and then we'll wrap up. Mr. Robertson. Where do women in ministry fit in, in this? Um, especially doing ministry in a primarily matriarchal mm-hmm. and bringing the reform, robust tradition and, and all that. And that's a struggle I'm constantly coming up with. Again, so seeking to be, especially in the PCA, biblically faithful. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. I think we have to be very sensitive and patient and also disciple people in the truth of Scripture. But I wonder if Y or Carl might comment on the matriarchal um, aspect of some of the black church tradition and how that interacts. Chasing the Navy because I'm, I don't have positions for them out there. So, you know, our theory has been that women in the church can do anything that, that an unordained uh, man can do, but there's pushback against that. My wife constantly challenges me, why is he up there and he's putting the woman up there? So, that's something I'm going to myself. Mm-hmm. Let me say this uh, to add to what Wyatt says this complementarian, egalitarian argument. In the African American context, we're not, we're not talking about it. Um, that's not a big deal um, uh, because we're, we're so busy dealing with other things, so basic survival issues and things like that. Now, having said that, yes, there is kind of a stronger matriarchal influence, but it's been my experience when you know uh, they find folks find it very refreshing to to a, a masculine a stronger masculine emphasis, it becomes very refreshing to folks across the board, even in, the, in a matriarchal thing to say, this, we like this. That's what the Nation of Islam yeah, did. That's right, that's yeah. right. Without getting into you know, complementarian and egalitarian. And so, uh, but that leaves room for uh, women to do what God gives them to do. But it's just, a, it's, it's, it's not, if, if they, we don't have the right to say that a woman cannot exercise the gift that God gives her. But what we do have the responsibility is to order that correctly. That's the thing. So, uh, so yeah, these issues that are going on, like in the Gospel Coalition, and <laughs> you know, that's not. We're not that's, that's, those aren't our issues. That, that's, those, those aren't our issues. They don't take. They're not at the front. We're really looking for. The, 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 a lot of Christian women are really just hungry to see strong men uh, who are godly, and uh, that that has a profound effect.
And I appreciate what you said because one of the reasons RAN is out there is because the issues that have more prominence in African-American communities don't get much attention on other sites. So part of what we're doing is importing a different set of cultural questions into a different culture. And so I encourage you to go to sites like RAN or even secular sites like, like Ebony and Jet and see what they're talking about because it ain't the same thing. And that's what our theology needs to address. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for coming out. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.